Hang on, though. Can we look at spicy hermit cookie day just for a minute? Yes. I'm definitely seeing like a sassy hermit crab or like. That's what I thought at first. An old like wizened (laughs) misanthrope who just like throws out truth bombs. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Every Day is a Food Day, a show about the stories, scandals, history and holidays behind your favorite foods. I'm Leah Ballantyne, a chef creator. And I'm Anna Van Valen, your resident foodlosopher. We have a surprise for you. Actually, it was a surprise for us too. A few months ago, Leah and I chose to do an episode about the prolific sweet treat that brings universal joy with a simple mention of its name, cookies. But when we began taping, we realized what a crummy idea that was. How could we possibly fit everything there is to say about cookies into a single episode? Cookies are just not cut out to be a single episode food. So we decided to make our very first two-parter. This is part one, and we'll be releasing part two next week. Today, you'll hear our stories of decorating artistically questionable but delicious holiday cookies, Leah's soft spot for soft-baked cookies, and how I mistook a foreign biscuit for health food for, like, a really long time. Then, after an epic list of all the cookie holidays and a bit of cookie history, I'll tell you the semi-sweet story of the woman who invented the chocolate chip cookie, how the Girl Scouts got us hooked on Thin Mints while building an empire, and a revolutionary cookie activist. Next week, we'll be back with a deep dish bigger than a baker's dozen, where I will tell you another story of a food rivalry stuffed with scandal, backstabbing, and terrible marketing. This time, it's the century-long drama that created the most popular cookie in the world, Oreo versus Hydrox. So be sure to follow the show and check back next week for part two. If you want to support this women and BIPOC created independent podcast, give us some sugar. Click the buy me a coffee link in the show notes to help us cover the cost of production. And please leave us a rating and review. For more delicious content about these foods and stories and a peek behind the scenes, check out the links in our show notes to visit our website, join our mailing list, and connect with us on social media at Food Day Pod, including our monthly IG Lives. Earlier this month, we were joined live by Evan and Nick from the Drinking Horn Meadcast to discuss our crossover episode, A Meeting of the Minds. And yes, they were drinking mead the whole time. Well, we've got a lot to cover, so let's start the show. Hello, Leah. How are you? I'm doing well. And yourself? I mean, cookies. Everybody wants a cookie. Everybody wants a cookie. Mm -hmm. Cookies make me so happy. Do you have any idea how many Oreos I've eaten this week? How many Oreos (laughs) there are in my home? Well, Anna's a very thorough researcher, so (laughs) I'm sure the number of Oreos is quite high. That's right. Very thorough. And I had Mm -hmm. to really, you know, I had to really look at the breadth of the oeuvre of Oreo. Mm-hmm. Everything from the thins, which I don't understand. Like why? All the way to the most stuff. Yeah, why the thins? Are there people out there that prefer the cookie, the chocolate cookie to the stuff? Mm-mm. I don't know. 
I mean, cookies really are the gift that keeps on giving because there's so many different kinds, but Mm -hmm. they are all basically delicious. They are. And that's why I love finding really great, unique cookies for Yum Day boxes. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite cookie? I would have to say I love Chewy Chips Ahoy. Yeah. There's just something about them. Soft bake. I'm a soft bake cookie person. Yeah. You prefer Mm -hmm. that to like a crispier. Yeah. Yeah. So I go for a Chewy Chips Ahoy. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now, one of my sort of like at the end of a long day treats for myself was I'd pass, you know, the bodega on the way to my apartment from the subway stop when I lived in New York. Mm -hmm. And I'd get one of those six packs of soft batch. Yes. And then you put them in the microwave. Mm. For like five seconds, 10 seconds. And it's like a fresh baked chocolate chip cookie that just came out of the oven. Oh, that sounds amazing. I I like the microwave hack. Mm -hmm. A few seconds Mm -hmm. to warm it back up. Mm -hmm. It's like you're breathing life back into a soft baked cookie. And it unleashes the smell. Oh, yeah. The smell of fresh baking cookies in your home. So you can pretend that you (laughs) baked. (laughs) Do you just like put them on a pan and pretend like they came straight out of your oven. I put on the apron and Uh I'm like, honey, (laughs) I made cookies. But the smell of cookies does have that psychological link of home to us. Isn't Mm -hmm. it like realtors when they're setting up open houses? There's like the smell of chocolate chip cookies in a spray. They'll like spray it around the house to make it feel like a home. Mm -hmm. They're like, you got to stage the house and make it smell like cookies. Yeah. Sold. That's why all these housing prices are so high. (laughs) I will pay anything for this house. Waive the inspection. Just let it smell like cookies. (laughs) Then you move in and you're like, we didn't get to keep that furniture or the cookie smell. (laughs) Now there's just things I have to fix. (laughs) Right. The plumbing is shot. No one told me the plumbing is shot. So, Anna, do you have any fond cookie memories? I mean, every cookie memory I am fond of. (laughs) But... One of my fondest mm-hmm. cookie memories comes from a holiday tradition on my mom's side of the family. So, Leah, I don't know if you remember my grandpa Chet. Um, how can we not remember Grandpa Chet? He's like my favorite. Hello, the whole wine episode. Yes. Grandpa <laughs> Chet is, you know, my hero. He is the the champion of boxed wine. He really is. Listeners, you'll remember our wine episode. I did a very scientific, objective, peer-reviewed study of what is the best container for wine. Mm -hmm. And I looked at boxes, cans, and bottles. There was criteria. There were checklists. There was a rating scale. Whole thing. I believe I've now cited in like seven PhD dissertations. Of course. Obviously. (laughs) Primary source. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually inspired by my grandpa Chet because one of his mottos (laughs) was wine bottles are for snobs. Because mm-hmm. he believed that the bottle was just to make the wine more expensive and it was just as good in boxes. Yep. And so he was like ride or die Franzia. <laughs> the Franzia box of Cabernet been on the counter in my grandparents' house since long before I came into the house, long before I was born. Anyway, so he'd been saying that my whole life. I wanted to test it out. So as you can see, he's a big personality. He's a character. Yeah. He is. He's a character. So if you haven't listened to that episode or you haven't listened to that episode in a while, scroll back to season one and check it out. Learn all about Grandpa Chet and then you'll totally understand how right this man is. (laughs) I mean, he wasn't wrong wrong. Yeah. (laughs) 
my grandfather was a jazz musician, an incredible prolific jazz musician, and music was part of our lives everywhere. Like everybody has to play an instrument. Like there was this joke that if you brought someone home, like a boyfriend mm-hmm. or a girlfriend, the first thing my grandpa's going to ask is what instrument do you play? Oh. Yeah, like we have multiple family bands. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah. I always wanted to be in a family band. We have multiple family bands. um, And there's even when they built their house, they built a stage into the living room. (laughs) Love it. And they were also, you know, pretty religious Christians. And so every year we would have a Christmas sing. This is what you need to know about my family is like my grandpa made our own like hymnals, like songbooks (laughs) and had them bound. So there's like Jaeger family Christmas songbooks. That's awesome. And the band would come, the Night Blooming Jasmine, but it's J-A-Z-Z-M-E-N, not J-A-S-M-I-N-E. So a pun. Mm -hmm. I see. The puns run deep. The puns (laughs) are strong. And we would sing the Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, and the jazz band would play with us. And it was really, it was just such a phenomenal tradition for like 70 years from when my grandparents got married. That's incredible. So we bake like thousands of cookies for this thing. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like you'd have to have at least a thousand for the number of people in your family that would be there. Like there were scotchies, which are like oatmeal cookies with butterscotch chips, which sounds like a weird combination, but they're incredible. There's ones that are like, they're like peanut butter cookies with a Hershey's Kiss in the middle. Oh, like a little drop? Yeah, like a drop in the middle. And then we make hundreds of sugar cookies with the cookie cutter. So in the different shapes and the grandkids, of course, we're all in our 30s and 40s now, but like the grandkids would have to decorate them. That was our job. And like you'd run out of ideas pretty quick and things would get weird. (laughs) What is like the weirdest cookie decoration that has come out of a Jaeger family Christmas sing celebration? So they were probably... All of the things that used the Santa cookie cutter shape, like Santa got a, <laughs> Santa got a lot of <laughs> costumes, weird skin hair combinations. There was mm-hmm. alien Santas, dinosaur Santas. Like, I think the Santa went through a lot of incarnations. Sort of like if you imagine Santa is like Barbie, there was like astronauts. <laughs> There's just <laughs> every Santa you could think of. But I have so many pictures of just the table. Like we would have to line up end to end, like folding table after folding table Wow! of these cookies. And the tradition was you have to make cookies until someone says, have you made enough cookies yet? Usually an uncle. Usually an uncle would say, you think you've made enough cookies yet? And then you stop. Ugh. Yeah. And then it was a big deal with the parents. It was kind of like gifts on Christmas of like the parents would be like, you can have one cookie before the sing. So you'd go in there and you'd look through, look at the cookies through the saran wrap and you'd be like, oh, man, I got this big decision. It's kind of torture. Yeah. Got to pick one to like hold you over Mm -hmm. until after the sing. And then they would say like, "Okay, you can only have two. You can only have three. But give me a break. Come on. (laughs) But then my grandparents, of course, because they kept everything, had a million like tins. And so whatever was left over, they put them in the tins and freeze them so that like when we were visiting in July and playing in the pool, my grandma would come out with the tin of the Christmas cookies. Oh, and it was so, so special. So that's really I mean, I'll eat a cookie any day. I love cookies of all kinds. But when I think of cookies, I think of our massive display at the Christmas thing. That's such a sweet memory. Yeah. 
I love it. Do you have any cookie memories? You know, decorating sugar cookies was always really fun. There was this Christmas fair in Knoxville that I used to go to every year, the Fantasy of Trees. And you would see all of these crazy, like, (laughs) trees decorated in really unique ways. And the trees were always auctioned off. So it was like some sort of organization or charity would decorate like a Van Gogh Christmas tree. And, you know, somebody could could bid on it and buy it and it would all help raise money for various charities and organizations. So That's so cool. Yeah. But at the Fantasy of Trees, there was a little place where you could go, the kids, they said kids, but I was going even as an adult, (laughs) go (laughs) over to decorate sugar cookies. And I don't know what it is, like sugar cookies are the best, but maybe just having the freedom of taking icing and sprinkles and letting your inner artist get loose and just throw whatever shit you want on top (laughs) of that was always so much fun. And of course, I would like make a cookie and it would be so thick. (laughs) It was probably more icing than cookie. Sure. But God, I loved it. You know, the trees were great, but I was I was really there for the sugar cookie decorating. Not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah, I remember one year I decorated like a cookie on a cookie. So it was a cookie. And then I made a smaller version of that same cookie and painted it in. So it was like super meta. I was really (gasps) proud of it. It was like a cookie inception. Whoa. Yeah. Or I'd make like a black and white one. So it would be like rows of white chocolate chips and then rows of black chocolate chips. Mm. It would be like, and then I was like, oh, this looks like an old timey prisoner cookie. (laughs) Man, I'm craving cookies so much right now. Cookies are what taught me that I cannot do moderation. I can't do it. (laughs) Really. How so? Oh, my God. Like, (laughs) one Oreo. No interest. No. No interest in one. One Oreo can go to hell, honestly. I do not want (laughs) one Oreo. I want the sleeve of Oreos. Yeah. One chocolate chip cookie is not going to do it for me. I want to eat chocolate chip cookies till I go, oh, man. I think I ate too many chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) I simply cannot do it. It's the reason why, like, I can't have cookies in the house, except now. I have so many Oreos. I am, everyone, going to do a little experiment with Oreos and the stuff. I couldn't resist getting all the different sizes of stuff, the double stuff, mega stuff, most stuff. And I am going to do little experiments with their volume and weight and amount of stuff. So we'll we'll put that on the Instagrams. Very exciting. But I realized, like, I can't have them in the house because I can't stop. Mm. And I'm not someone who's like, I'll just have one slice of pizza. No. (laughs) Do not want it. I want the whole thing. Why just one? I think the cookie, like Oreos and even the Chips Ahoy has shown me just how OCD I am because I I want my the sleeve finished. Or you're going to eat the cookies from that row first and finish the row before you jump to the next row. I'm just saying, I know some people who will skip rows and just grab their Oreos all willy-nilly from the package. But for me, I, I like I like to clean out each row. Oh, is it just because yeah. aesthetically it looks more organized? Is it because you're like giving yourself an excuse saying, well, I have to finish this row. I can't leave a partial <laughs> row. It's like a barbarian. Yeah, I think it's a mix of both. <laughs> it's a... Uh, can't just leave a little bit of the row left like I'm I gotta eat that cookie like if there's just one in the row like why I gotta eat it <laughs> it really bugs me I get that <laughs> Ooh, I know you'll you'll talk about this more with Oreos mm-hmm. but I was curious are do you dunk them are you a dunker a twister man you know what I just fucking raw dog eat it really like I just <laughs> chomp into it I don't play around 
Oh. Like, okay. a dunking in milk is delicious, and I will totally do that. But if I don't have milk, it will not slow me down. That's true. I've never let the lack of milk stop me from <laughs> eating the Oreos. But if there's milk there, I will dunk all day. And I kind of like it when it gets really soggy. Like, it's almost about to fall off, but not oh, quite. Oh, God, yeah. And it falls up into your mouth. Mm-hmm. And oh. then the milk is all, like, cookies and creamy. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so good. I'm going to eat more. I'm going to eat freaking more cookies now. <laughs> yeah. No, I do remember being a kid and seeing if you could get that clean twist. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. It was rare for me. I think I had trouble with, like, the perfect twist that still kept, you know, the stuff on a side. Oh, yeah. On one side. Mm-hmm. You know, I just read about mechanical engineers at MIT just built something called an oreometer or an oreometer. Oh. Because they wanted to figure out what the optimal way to do the twist was. And they actually <laughs> published the designs for the oreometer. It looks really cool. You can, So you can 3D print it and do like your own test because they wanted to see what it was that did the perfect twist. Was it the speed at which mm. you twist? Was it the amount of pressure that you apply? When you twist, like what could it be? So many factors to consider here. So many factors. I just love that 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 was, we'll talk about it, but that was one of their first marketing campaigns and kind of set the tone for the playfulness and being involved. Like the way you eat your Oreo is part of... Uh, is sort of like part of our relationship w- to it, right? They, they, yeah. Their advertising really centers around like participating in eating the Oreo, you know? That's true. Making it your own, which is something I think really helped it catch on. Mm-hmm. So it's just amazing that that started as an ad on a trolley 100 years ago. Whoa. And now engineers at MIT are like building machines. <laughs> With, like, very well-funded grants oh, absolutely. from other amazing research institutions. They've already gotten the, like, MacArthur Genius Award. There's uh-huh. Fulbright <laughs> scholarships involved. Yeah. Incredible. So in your travels, we're both big travelers. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any cookies that were, like, super weird to you or surprised you <laughs> in different countries? Ah, uh, I can't really think of anything that shocked me. Like as a cookie culture shock. (laughs) I'm just imagining you, somebody handing you something weird and being like, it's a cookie. And you're like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You say so. (laughs) I mean, I think there was, you know, when I was younger and confused about the cookie biscuit terminology. Issue. Yes. Yeah. That's where I was like, is this a cookie? Is this not a cookie? Is this a cracker? (laughs) I studied abroad in England and their number one selling biscuit is called a digestive. Mm -hmm. And you can get chocolate digestives. But, like, the name is digestive. Okay. Yeah. Someday I will take a peek at why it's called that. I wonder if it's related to, like, digestif. Something Mm -hmm. like, you know, digestif is a a liqueur you drink after you eat your meal, right, to sort of help you digest, allegedly. (laughs) So I wonder if that's related, you know, digestif, like a dessert. But it's called a digestive, and that is not yummy sounding. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm, Digestives. (laughs) Mm, I can't wait to digest (laughs) this. But I remember looking at it, and I was traveling, so, you know, I was having some digestive Mm -hmm. issues. And you know how here we have, like, fiber one granola bars? Yes. So that's what I thought I digest was. <laughs> like, okay, you know what? I need this digestive. This will help me with I my need travel some gut. Help with my travel gut. Uh-huh. You know, I was like, this will help move things along. And it's like, it's got chocolate. And I ate it and I was like, 
this is really good. It's not helping <laughs> in any way. Like, why do they call it this? It's not helping. But damn, these are good. Wow. And it took a full semester for someone to be like, yeah, no, they're just they're just called that, man. I thought I was being healthy, getting my fiber in. I was just straight up eating cookies. Oh, uh, this reminds me of that Mean Girls uh, oh. <laughs> lunch. <laughs> <laughs> the health bars they gave to starving children. Mm, enjoy these digestives. Sorry, Regina George. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm ready to really dig into cookies. Are you? Yeah. You want to take a bite into cookies? Let's sink our teeth. We've already done that one. <laughs> Let's stick our hands in the cookie jar. Yeah. <laughs> stick our hands in the cookie jar of knowledge. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> okay, Leah. So we all know what a cookie is to us. Mm-hmm. But so we're all on the same page. Yeah. What is cookie? What is cookie? That's what a is wonderful... cookie? <laughs> what is cookie? That is a good question. A cookie is basically a flour-based sweet cakey thing that you can hold in your hand. And it usually has some sort of fat in it, which I like, <laughs> like butter. Um, shortbread cookies, great example of a flour-based cakey thing that's loaded up with a lot of fat. And you can have different flavors and textures for cookies. So similar to the pretzel, cookies contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can add other things to it, like nuts, raisins, chocolate. It's kind of a canvas. Right. And, you know, earlier when we were talking at the top of the episode, one of the things we said was like, how could you not like a cookie? First of all, the name cookie itself just sounds so sweet, right? Adorable. I know. And I, I always wondered, like, where did this name come from? And so I read that it was derived from the Dutch word, koekje. Koekje. Which means little cake. And so that makes so much sense to call it a little cake. And then there's the other term for cookie that we discussed is like biscuit. Mm -hmm. So what's what's the difference between a biscuit and a cookie? So if you look at the word biscuit, a lot of people will say it comes from the old French word, biscuit, meaning twice cooked. Huh. So when you think about a biscuit that way, and then you think about a cookie being a little cake, to me, biscuits are like the crispy versions and cookies are the chewier ones. Right. That's just my theory. So <laughs> a biscuit traditionally is like a cracker. Mm-hmm. It's a little harder. It's harder. It's crispier. And it was. It used to be savory, kind of exclusively savory. And then when they started making sweet versions of crackers, like of biscuits, it kept that term, mm. biscuit. Interesting. Our cakey version, I think, is very much a North American thing because sometimes when you travel, it'll say American style cookies, uh. which I was always like, you mean the good ones? <laughs> So, yeah, it, you're totally on the money that biscuit is more cracker-like. Ah, but then let's not even bring like a Southern biscuit into this, a fluffy Southern biscuit. That's another episode. That's another episode. That's another episode. We definitely have to do that. Mm. <laughs> okay, so the word seems to be derived from a Dutch word, but mm -hmm. is there a place where cookies started? Like, is there an inventor of the cookie? Well, we can't pinpoint an inventor of the cookie because there's been some form of cookie around forever. Cookies were, were thought to be little just test cakes, which is where mm. we get the little cake word from, that bakers would make in order to test the temperature of their ovens. You know, back in the day, they didn't really have like a dial or a readout <laughs> that would say, all right, we've hit 425 degrees. Um, there was no app. To, <laughs> there was no app. No Bluetooth. No smart ovens. <laughs> Yeah, your your oven didn't sing to you or tell you that you've hit the, the optimal temperature. So 
when people were making cakes, they would take a little bit of that batter and then stick it into their oven to see, you know, if it would start baking it and cooking it just right. And of course, why why let that little piece of batter go to waste when it got all cooked up? You got to eat it. And hate food waste. Where, yeah, you got you got cookies. So that's sort of where it started. But if you look back all the way to the 7th century AD in the Persian Empire, this was actually one of the first places to grow and harvest sugarcane. And that's where we see more luxurious cakes and pastries being made. Mm. And so there were a lot of cookies that started to be baked at that time. Right. I can see that, especially if they're experimenting with different recipes with these new ingredients, you'd want to test them out. Mm-hmm. And testing it with sugarcane, I'm sure the first cookie that was made... <laughs> That was just super sweet and sugary. Must have delighted and surprised many people. <laughs> it's like the original mind blown emoji. Mm-hmm. Just like, like what? What? <laughs> what have I done? And so as cane sugar began to spread, so did the popularity of the cookie. And by the end of the 14th century, you see in like Renaissance cookbooks that there were cookie recipes in there. Oh. Which is pretty neat. Cool. Yeah, so folks were actually starting to document the making of these little cakes. So it has shifted from just tests to Mm -hmm. the thing. Yeah. We're like, hmm, you can eat this and it's delicious. (laughs) I'll just stop right here. Yeah. It was probably way easier, too, if you think about it, than having to create one large, massive cake. If you could just do lots of smaller little cakes, they could probably bake faster. Oh, yeah. Well, if you think about it, if if you're making a sheet of cookies, it Mm -hmm. bakes in 10 minutes. If you're making a whole cake, it takes a half hour. Yeah. Bang, bang, bang. Exactly. So how do we get cookies in America now? So cookies were were starting to spread all over Europe. And in the late 1600s, we can thank our immigrants for bringing cookies here. So the English, Scotch, and Dutch brought cookies to America. And the cookies that they brought were a lot like the butter cookies that we're used to seeing over there. So that shortbread Mm. style cookie. But did you know that the first truly American cookie came out as a result of a recipe that was written in a cookbook by our girl, Amelia Simmons. <gasps> Amelia Simmons, author of the first American cookbook. Yeah, that is right. The first truly like all American cookbook. She published it in 1796. It has recipes for cookies in there. And as we've talked about in the past, she also had a recipe for pumpkin pie and lots of first recipes for dishes that we see and enjoy as a truly American dish. Can you just say the whole title, please? Yes. Okay. I love this. So this requires like a breathing exercise right before you say it. (laughs) Amelia Simmons' cookbook was called American Cookery or The Art of Dressing Viands, Fish, Poultry, and Vegetables in the Best Modes of Making Puff Paste, Pies, Tarts, Puddings, Custards, and Preserves, and All Kinds of Cakes from the Imperial Plum to Plain Cake. Literally covers everything. Yeah. So in case you were wondering what's in the cookbook... (laughs) If you were looking for something specialized, narrow, really focused on one thing, Mm -hmm. this ain't it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it covers everything from imperial plum to plain cake. Oh, man. I've been looking for a great recipe for imperial plum (laughs) for ages. Mm -hmm. You need puff paste? Amelia's got you covered. (laughs) Viands? Get your viands right Uh here. You could say she really wrote the book (laughs) on American cookery. Is that a pun or just a fact? I don't know. Putting, <laughs> we're putting the bell in. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so in this cookbook, Amelia actually had two recipes for cookies. So one was just your all-purpose general cookie. And then the other was for a Christmas cookie that incorporated some spices in there for Christmas time. Hmm. So it's pretty cool that she really immortalized and presented the cookie to America in this way with other American foods. And the cookies started to become more and more popular over the years. 
because just like the pretzel, we have industrialization to thank for that. Cookies started to be mass produced. They could be distributed all over. And I was reading this really cool article that said that the geographic development of the United States is reflected in popular cookie recipes. So over time, there started to be new cookie recipes that incorporated different types of ingredients, ones that you could only get thanks to the expansion of the railroad system that could bring ingredients from one region to another. So you would see cookies with fruits in them, cookies with nuts from the South. There are pecans in there. Or pecans. That's a callback. Or pecans, if you insist, Anna. (laughs) And then even in the 30s, when cereal was on the rise and cereal products Mm. started to be distributed widely, thank you to Ella Kellogg for that. Thank you, Ella Kellogg. Ella. Creator of cereal. Ella. And only Ella. (laughs) Ella. The other guys were freaks. (laughs) Mm -hmm. The other guys made all sorts of things for all sorts of reasons that we don't need to talk about. Ella made the cereal. That's a callback. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks to Ella and her cereal. You start to see cereal products being worked into cookie recipes. So that's why we get things like oatmeal cookies. Oh. So it's pretty cool to see how cookie evolution matches up with the way America was growing and changing and how regional foods started to become national foods thanks to transportation. Yeah, that really reminds me of our barbecue episode and how we went through all the different regions of barbecue. Yeah. And how in South Carolina, barbecue was just pork, just pork because they were the biggest pork farmers. And then Mm -hmm. when we get into like Memphis and Kansas City, those had a lot of like molasses and different spices and tomatoes because they were right on the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. So they could get all of those ingredients. So the barges are going up and down bringing all those ingredients. So that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. So you can see that same thing with with cookies. Yeah. And even in the 1930s, you know, refrigeration was becoming a thing. So then icebox cookies started to become popular. And icebox cookies are basically your slice and bake cookies that you have today. So people were able to pre-make their cookie dough and then refrigerate it and then be able to take it out, slice it up and bake cookies easily. Love it. Both the combination of the popularity of cookies mm-hmm. and the fact that there's so many kinds of cookies is leading me to believe that we might have one or two cookie holidays. Let's try 18 cookie holidays. 18? Yeah. Are we having an epic list right now? We're having an epic list. Oh, yeah. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> epic list time. Epic list. Yes, I have counted at least 18 cookie holidays on the food holiday calendar. There are probably more that I just didn't find because it was a weird cookie recipe that I'd never heard of or didn't search for. But there are 18 that I'm going to read off to you right now in this epic list form. Okay. Buckle up, everyone. We have Girl Scout Cookie Day on February 8th, National Oreo Cookie Day, March 6th, Chocolate Chip Cookie Week, which is the second week of March. National Lacey Oatmeal Cookie Day, March 18th. National Chinese Almond Cookie Day, April 9th. National Oatmeal Cookie Day, April 30th. National Peanut Butter Cookie Day, June 12th. National Sugar Cookie Day, July 9th. Fortune Cookie Day, July 20th. National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day, August 4th. National Pecan Cookie Day, September 21st. Homemade Cookie Day, October 1st. National Cookie Month, October. National Spicy Hermit Cookie Day, November 15th. National Gingerbread Cookie Day, November 21st. National Cookie Cutter Week, the first week of December. National Cookie Day, December 4th. National Cookie Exchange Day, December 22nd. Whew. Whoa. Yeah. That's a lot. 
it's a lot of days. So what I'm going to do is just focus on four of them, which I think are the most notable. And also they are the only ones that actually have a verified origin because the rest of those cookie days were just people needing an excuse to eat their favorite cookies. At least that's what I think. I mean, good for them. <laughs> Absolutely. Hang on though. Can we look at spicy hermit cookie day just for a minute? Yes. I'm definitely seeing like a sassy hermit crab or like... That's what I thought at first. An old like wizened (laughs) misanthrope who just like throws out truth bombs. Yeah. No, there's no there's no hermit crab involved in the spicy hermit cookie day, but there is sort of like hermit vibes on National Spicy Hermit Like stay in. Stay in, yes. So that is a day to celebrate a nice spiced cookie. And because it's on November 15th, it's sort of the beginnings of fall. Like you're really feeling those fall cozy vibes. And so you're going to have your little spicy hermit cookies, your spicy stay at home, stay cozy. I love it. Chill with yourself cookie. Everyone, I want you to think about a spicy hermit in your life. (laughs) I love it. You know what? That's like goals. (laughs) I'm going to be a spicy hermit. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay, so four most notable ones. Yeah. Want to hear them? All right. One very special cookie day to call out is Girl Scout Cookie Day on February 8th. And that day was actually started by the Girl Scouts in 2013. So it's a little recent. It's a little, okay. it's more recent of a celebration. But I'm going to dig into the Girl Scout cookies here in a little bit. So okay. we'll save it right there. I'll put a pin in that. Put a pin a, in a that. Badge. <laughs> put a badge on that. Not quite there. Carry on. <laughs> The other very special cookie holiday is National Cookie Cutter Week, which it's not, you know, the actual cookie. We're talking about a device to make cookies. Right. But this is on the first week of December, and it was created by a woman in Kentucky named Paula Mullins. And she started this day in 1996. So Paula was an avid baker, a cookie cutter collector, and she felt like there just needed to be a time to recognize cookie cutters, the just wide variety of them, the special styles. So she actually started a petition to make this an official week. And so she would go around her town gathering signatures. And if you signed the petition, she would give you a horse head cookie cutter. And that's oh, because I'm so glad you said cookie cutter. <laughs> that pause just a horse head. After, that pause after horse head gave me, uh, gave me pause. Okay, a horse head cookie cutter. This yes. makes sense, though, because I can totally see that if mm-hmm. you have cookie making as a hobby or cookie decorating as a hobby, you're probably always in search of different shapes to right. play with. And I don't know if, if it's easy to make on your own or not. This totally strikes me as something that people would like trade, Mm -hmm. collect, totally. Yeah. Well, she got obviously enough people to sign this petition. Um, She raised it to local government. And they're like, yes, we can. We're going to (laughs) recognize Cookie Cutter Week for you. Um, Oh, Kentucky. (laughs) Kentucky. (laughs) The home of the horse head cookie cutter. So Paula started, you know, this the special celebration. And as part of it, every year she would make a very unique cookie cutter to celebrate the year. So if you head to cookiecuttercollectorsclub.com, this is the group that is continuing this tradition year after year. You can actually see all of the special cookie cutters that were made for this celebration from 1996 to present day. And some of them are really cute. There's like a little fox one. So I thought of you, Anna, when I saw the fox. It's my favorite animal. And then... The 2020 cookie cutter is a monster, which I thought was perfect. <laughs> that tracks. Mm-hmm. And I thought can... it was going to be like a virus. <laughs> Ooh. The shape of a virus. You know what? 
That'd be good. Maybe it was too hard to make all the all the, all the points. The spikes. <laughs> spikes. What are they called? The spikes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe uh, somebody can can do a, a variant. Yeah. A set Maybe of the COVID <laughs> variant cookie cutters. <laughs> a whole set, or like mm-hmm. a mask. Oh, with the loops. That a could mask be a good one. one. Would be good. That one. That's really good. Hey, cookie cutter collectors club. Dot com. Yeah. Mask cookie cutters, please. Call us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I thought that one was a really interesting. That is super sort sweet. Of special cookie holiday. Maybe we wouldn't have had to make so many weird Santas if we'd That's had true. some more options. <laughs> That's all you needed. Just more options cutters. for cookie cutters. <laughs> and then we have National Cookie Day, the ultimate day to celebrate cookies on December 4th. And guess who started this day? Ooh. Cookie Monster. <gasps> C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Oh, cookie, cookie, cookie starts with C. Yay! Oh. C. Yeah, so in 1976, Sesame Street had a calendar that they would publish, and they included National Cookie Day on the calendar. And actually, back then, it was November 26th that they had this cookie day. Okay. And then Cookie Monster in the 1980s started to proclaim and shout out National Cookie Day. And you could find National Cookie Day in the Sesame Street Dictionary. And I mean, of course, like, who better to champion Cookie Day than Cookie Monster? I mean, he would know. Right. He knows everything there is to know about cookies. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe in him. And then the date actually shifted to December 4th in the mid 80s when a cookie company started to promote Cookie Day. And I think just the majority of that that marketing <laughs> at the Internet switched like cookie days from November 26th to December 4th. I say celebrate on both days. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. And also, not? I can't imagine that cookie company was not inspired by Right. Cookie Monster. Mm-hmm. So really, it's just continuing that tradition. So we can exactly. say it came from Cookie Monster. Yeah. So thanks, Cookie Monster, for National Cookie Day. And then on December 22nd, December's full of eating cookies and cakes. But December's on the 22nd of December, <laughs> you have National Cookie Exchange Day. And this day was actually created by one of our favorite food holiday people that we've mentioned in the past named Jace Shoemaker Galloway. And If that name sounds familiar to you out there, it's because we talked about her in our wine episode as she is the creator of National Wine and Cheese Day on July 25th. Hero. Hero. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thanks to her creating National Wine and Cheese Day, that's how we get House Wines and the Cheez-It collaboration. Oh, my gosh. You guys, if you are not familiar with this, scroll through our Instagram. Every year Mm -hmm. they put out a wine and cheese it pairing and it's in one box and half the side of the box is the boxed wine and the other half is filled with Cheez-Its. And um, what what, Mm -hmm. a couple years ago it was rosé and white cheddar. Yeah. Cheez-It. Oh my goodness. Perfect pairing. So she's a genius and we should all exchange cookies Mm -hmm. on the 22nd. Those are the most important days for me. Love it. So much history behind cookies, so many holidays. We've already talked about a couple of important people and monsters related Mm -hmm. to these cookie holidays. Are there any other cookie people that stood out to you? Yes. Names we should know. Names we should know. So we need to know these three names for sure. The first one is Juliet Gordon Lowe, who is the founder of the Girl Scouts. Mm. The second one, Ruth Graves Wakefield, who invented our favorite cookie ever, and the third is Jasmine Cho, who is doing amazing things with cookies today. Love it. 
So Juliet Gordon-Lowe is the founder of the Girl Scouts, and I mentioned earlier Girl Scout Cookie Day is February 8th. So Juliet, people called her Daisy. That was like her nickname. Huh. I think that's why we have Daisy Scouts before you get into being a brownie. Oh. Yeah. So all maybe right. I'll call her by her nickname, Daisy. Okay. <laughs> Daisy started the Girl Scouts in... 1912 in her hometown savannah and she did this because she had met the person who had started the boy scouts and had heard about girl guides and thought um we need to have this for our girls here in my community in my country yeah so i'm gonna create our own scouting troop where we can learn all kinds of things everything from things we can do at home to what we can do to prepare ourselves for school and the professional world Hmm. so in 1912 juliet gordon lowe slash Daisy, started the Girl Scouts of America. And the the Scouts grew. I think it grew faster than she even thought it could because a few years later, they had like 20,000 Scouts all over the U.S. And as they were continuing to grow, troops needed to find a way to finance their troop activities. Mm. So one chapter came up with the idea to bake and sell cookies. And they thought, this is great. It's a, a wonderful home economics project. We learn to bake. We have our baking mentors and advisors. And then we also learn business and financial literacy with the sale of the cookies. And it became successful. So they were able to raise funds for their troop to continue to do all of these other activities, earn their badges, learn new things, and keep growing. Wow. So when cookie sales became a national thing, it was in 1922, and that's because a person published a recipe in the American Girl magazine, which was the Girl Scouts of America's own magazine, Mm -hmm. and that recipe included all the ingredients needed to make this fantastic cookie that you could sell, and as part of that story, the pricing of the ingredients and how much you should sell the cookies for was included, which is really cool. Right, because it was about setting up a little business, teaching Mm -hmm. them how to set up that business, how to, you know, track your inventory, how to set prices, how to check, you know, your income and revenue. It was to teach them skills, not just to raise money for activities, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. I thought that was so neat. In the most delicious way. (laughs) That's right. So now you know how to make this cookie and you know how to sell it and how to market it. So by the 1930s, you know, all of these local chapters were starting to bake and sell cookies. They started to get savvy with their marketing too. And so that's where... (laughs) You see the Girl Scouts end up learning how to license commercially baked cookies beyond just making their own because they were doing everything at home by hand. But they realized, hey, we can learn licensing. We can strike deals with commercial bakeries to make the cookies for us that we sell. And then things began to boom when the popularity of suburbs was just on the rise post-war. People were able to do door-to-door sales, sell to neighbors. They started to create new flavors like the Thin Mint in the 1950s. So the Girl Scout cookies really became a thing. And I love that the way Juliet Gordon-Lowe set this all up when she launched the Girl Scouts was it's not just about, you know, making these foods or learning how to take care of yourself and home. It's also about building a business and how to be self-reliant, how to create independence and be able to support yourselves in this way. So it was kind of great that she kicked off the sort of entrepreneurial vibe that the Girl Scouts have. What's cooking? Democracy, self-reliance and good citizenship. Girl Scout cookies help make it possible for girls to practice the art of democracy, to develop their self-reliance, and to be good citizens. Keep Girl Scouting happening in your community. Bye. Girl Scout cookies. 
And so today we see so many amazing Girl Scout cookie flavors. They have vegan cookies, kosher cookies, halal cookies, and more. And Girl Scout cookies are actually one of the top cookie brands in America right behind Oreo. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when we were working in the studio? Some of our colleagues had kids, had daughters, and they would sell Girl Scout cookies. They would just like walk around desk to desk, like office to office and be like, it's Girl Scout cookie time. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> there was someone on my floor who their daughter, I was like, she is the next like top Forbes CEO because she would walk around. They had like a radio flyer wagon filled <gasps> with Girl Scout cookies. And, you know, she came by my desk and I was like, how much are they? And she was like, they're $5 a box or four for 20. Oh, she's good. She is good. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a deal. Wait a minute. <laughs> she got you. They would come around with this wagon and it wouldn't be entirely full. Like it would look mm-hmm. like there were boxes missing and I was like wow look at you like great job you know you've sold almost all of them and she goes there's like 20 more boxes in my dad's office so she was they were literally she was creating the demand creating scarcity <laughs> she was literally creating the demand by pulling mm-hmm. around this wagon and having it look like things were missing so that people would be like oh man I don't want her to run out of Thin Mints the yeah. tagalongs are getting low Ugh. and it was a total lie but it worked. So wherever she is at Harvard Business School or Silicon Valley, like, I salute you. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the Girl Scouts for, for creating, like, right? these really resilient, tough, go get them entrepreneurs. Yeah. And those are messages that girls still don't get. Mm-hmm. That is true. You can be ambitious. You can build something. You can want money and deal with money mm-hmm. and uh, have that independence and build something of your own. So every time that you eat, uh, what are they, samosa? Oh, God, uh, Samoas. Every time you eat a Samoa, you are supporting future mm-hmm. entrepreneurs of America. That's right. I say that every year there's 200 million boxes of Girl Scout cookies sold, which is 700 million in sales. But 75% of that goes back to the local council, which is amazing. And it's really like they are sustaining their their troop and their troop activities and, you know, creating this way for girls to grow and learn with each other. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right. Who's next? All right. Next up, Ruth Graves Wakefield. Another amazing Ruth. Another amazing Ruth. We've got some great Ruths on the show. We've got some great Ruths. (laughs) Ruth Desmond, peanut butter grandma, Mm -hmm. some great Ruths. Well, Ruth Graves Wakefield is the person that we need to thank for the chocolate chip cookie. Thank you, Ruth. The best cookie ever. The best. It like is consistently number one when people are asked, what flavor do you like the most? Chocolate chip cookies. So Ruth was born in 1903 in Massachusetts. And she was a teacher, a dietitian, a chef, an author, a business owner, you know, just all just the things. Like multi-hyphenate. Mm-hmm. But she's best known for, for being the inventor of the Toll House cookie, which is the first chocolate chip cookie ever. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Okay. So there's an interesting story behind it. Some people say that the cookie was created by accident, hmm. which is a myth, but but I'll explain. Okay. So in the 1930s, Ruth and her husband bought an inn in Massachusetts called the Toll House Inn. So it was there where Ruth started to really make a name for herself as an amazing chef. So people would come, stay the night at the inn, and it was like a little bed and breakfast. But her food was so good that people were just like coming to the inn. They didn't need to stay. <laughs> they just wanted to eat. Keep <laughs> your bed. Just to eat. <laughs> I'm just here for That's the breakfast. Right. Mm-hmm. So she was making amazing dinners, amazing desserts. And, you know, Ruth was someone who was always just like up in her game each time. And she wanted to create a new sort of cookie. 
something unique and delicious to give to her guests. So she was experimenting. And one story goes is that she was trying to make a traditional colonial recipe for something called a butter drop dough cookie, which is actually in Amelia Simmons' cookbook. Again. It's all connected, everyone. Food stories are people (laughs) stories. And apparently it's like the same 10 people. It's the same 10 people. (laughs) Amelia. A Ruth. One one of the Ruths. Ruth. James Hemmings. Mm -hmm. Johnny Appleseed. That's it. Yeah. It's a closed circle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when Ruth was trying to make this recipe, it had called for baker's chocolate, which would typically just melt when you mixed it and baked it in with the batter. But she didn't have baker's chocolate on hand. What she did have was Nestle semi-sweet chocolate, just a bar of that. So she thought, I'm just going to take this, break it up into little pieces and throw it in the batter. And then, you know, it'll melt. It'll work its way into the batter as it bakes. But it didn't. So all the chunks of chocolate were pretty much preserved. They didn't melt away. But when she ate it, it gave her this new sensation, Mm. a new type of bite, texture. The sweetness was really popping with those chocolate chunks. And she thought this is fantastic, served it to her guests. And that's how we get the Toll House chocolate chip cookie. So folks were saying it was invented on accident. But I did read a report that said, you know what? Ruth knew what she was doing. Uh, She wanted to make something different. And this was very intentional. Yeah, that's a little condescending to think Mm -hmm. that she just happened upon it. I'm right. You're right. She knew what she was doing. She knew what she was doing. She was making up new recipes all the time. Exactly. And she had, you know, a popular cookbook where she would include a lot of these recipes. And in 1938, in that edition of her cookbook, it had been reprinted many times already as she was coming up with new recipes. She included her Toll House cookie in the cookbook. Mm. And so there are a couple of reasons why people say the cookie, the chocolate chip cookie, became really popular. One was that during World War II, soldiers from Massachusetts would get Toll House cookies in their care packages. And then they would share it with their fellow soldiers who then wanted to know, where can I get this cookie? And when I go back home, like, how can I have more of this cookie? (laughs) Well, the other reason they say the chocolate chip cookie spread is because in 1939, Betty Crocker mentioned it on her radio series, Famous Foods from Famous Eating Places. And soon everyone everywhere was asking for this chocolate chip cookie. (laughs) Wait, so she had a food radio show Uh that was about famous foods from famous places? Yes. So did Betty Crocker like invent the food podcast? She totally did. She totally invented the food podcast. Yep. We are carrying on a long tradition. (laughs) That's right. Of the food podcast. I love that. Mm -hmm. By the way, Betty Crocker is not a real person. So we don't get her confused with Johnny Appleseed. (laughs) I cannot keep track. Or Auntie Anne. (laughs) Leah, I swear, if you had asked me to bet money on who was a real person, Johnny Appleseed or Betty Crocker, I would have a thousand percent lost money. I would have put it all on (laughs) Betty Crocker. (sighs) Yeah, Betty Crocker was the result of really great advertising. So she was a persona and this image that marketing guys made to represent this baking brand. And it just grew. So there have been on this radio show, different actresses played Betty Crocker. So she's like a character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's like the Spider-Man. Yeah, she was like the Spider-Man. There is a Betty Crocker multiverse out there. (laughs) So many origin stories. Mm -hmm. Man. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so basically Ruth got on a podcast (laughs) and (laughs) became really popular after that. (laughs) Awesome. 
And of course, as cookie sales increased, so did the sales of those Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate bars. And Nestle was like, hey, there's something here with these Toll House cookies. So Nestle and Ruth made a deal. And Nestle bought the exclusive rights to the Toll House name, the Toll House recipe. They let Ruth also use Nestle semi-sweet chocolates forever. Well, yeah. For free, I think. So, you know, it, it wasn't a bad deal. And that's why we see the Toll House recipe on the back of the Nestle chocolate chip packages. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, what about friends of your grandmother's? Wouldn't they have the recipe? Well, you know, I, I may have relatives in France who would know. My grandmother said she got the recipe from her grandmother, Nestle Toulouse. <laughs> what was her name? Nestle Toulouse. <laughs> Nestle Toll House? (laughs) You Americans always butcher the French language. (laughs) Phoebe, is this the recipe? So when did they start making chocolate chips? Did they start making chocolate chocolate pieces for these cookies? Right. So what happened was they were making the bars and people were buying more and more. So they actually then released another version of the bar where they had it scored. So it was easy to break up. Okay. But then they were like, we got to make it easier. And then that's (laughs) when the morsels were invented. I love that. The, The chocolate bar evolved because of Ruth's cookie recipe. Awesome. And then uh-huh. you can put chocolate chips in everything. Yeah. In your brownies. That's in right. your birthday cake. Yep. Thanks, Ruth. It's so good. And also thanks to Ruth, Massachusetts made the chocolate chip cookie its official state cookie. Passed this by law in July of 1997. Very important. Yeah, very important. By the way, I just have to say when I was looking up Massachusetts law, <laughs> I was digging into part one, title one, chapter two of the law book that talked about all of the other emblems of the Commonwealth. I love part one, title one, chapter two. Yeah, it's, it's the, the best, best chapter. Yeah. Section 41, if you want to know the official state dessert, the Boston cream pie is the official dessert of the Commonwealth. Makes sense. And then I looked up in section 40, Johnny Appleseed is the official folk hero of the Commonwealth. What? Yeah. Oh my god. Johnny Appleseed's back. In the law, in black and white, Johnny yeah. Appleseed was real. He was a hero. Yep. He's just spreading cider up and down the East Coast. (laughs) And so the last person I want to mention is Jasmine Cho. Jasmine Cho is an incredible baker, and she is a cookie activist. And I want to spotlight her for a couple of reasons. Number one, her cookies. They're amazing. She does these cookie portraits. They look so good. And number two, Jasmine Cho is a woman today who is using cookies to elevate the stories of underrepresented people in just like the most unique and tasty way possible. Wonderful. Yeah. Jasmine is the founder of an online bakery called Yummy Holic. And this is actually where she started to make custom cookie portraits for people. And she really just gravitated towards cookies because she saw them as a blank canvas, much like we were talking about at the very beginning, you know, Mm -hmm. like, what is a cookie? What could you do with a cookie? And so she saw the cookie as a way for her to express her art and her emotions and to use it as storytelling. And I remember the first time I saw her cookies on Instagram, I was just blown away at like the detail of a cookie portrait. I mean, there is no way that I could ever (laughs) do that. Like, if you saw my sugar cookie decorating, yeah, I, I don't have that 
that touch. Or that I hand. told you my high point was just rows of chocolate chips. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> But what she's able to do and express through these cookie portraits is is incredible and that she chooses to highlight really specific people that have moved culture forward that we don't know about. Much like what we try to do on this show is just yeah. it's so remarkable to me. And just that she's doing this in like a fun way, too, through cookies is so neat. So here's a clip from her TED Talk where she talks about how she uses these cookies to tell these stories that need to be heard and how cookies are actually a way for her to connect with her past. I already knew how limitless the cookie canvas truly was. You can create anything with a little bit of sugar, food coloring, and imagination. I had started making face cookies and noticed how they were so effective in capturing people's attention more than anything else. So knowing that I had a means to capture people's attention, I wanted to direct it towards the issues that mattered most to me. So this is how I started telling Asian American stories through cookie art. Like the story of Afong Moi, who was the first known immigrant woman from China who came to the US in 1834. She was brought over by brothers Frederick and Nathaniel Kane, who were US-China tradesmen. They put Afong up on display as part of a New York exhibit that showed off various Chinese curiosities, and they presented her as the beautiful Chinese lady. The Kane brothers used Afong as a marketing strategy, hoping to attract viewers to buy their goods from China while having a chance to gawk at Afong's four-inch little feet. Wow, she's really impressive. She really is. I mean... Cookies as a form of activism is something I, I never would have thought of. But when you realize, again, what food means and what food can do as a way to connect people and expose you to new cultures and ideas, yeah, then it does make perfect sense. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen that all throughout the different hidden figures, food heroes that we've talked about is they just sort of started where they were. I would never th have thought that pumpkin pie could be used, you know, for social good to unify a country or that maple syrup would be part of the anti-slavery movement. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you start where you are and look at what you can do and what you love and what you have access to and leverage that for a cause that you really believe in, like she's Jasmine Show is perfect proof that that can work. Hopefully mm -hmm. we are, too, with what we're doing. Yeah. Okay, Anna. So we've talked about cookie history, cookie holidays and cookie people. And now I'm super excited to hear from you in the deep dish all about the number one cookie brand around the world, the Oreo cookie. It, it really is. It's astonishing. We all know Oreo. We love them. But mm -hmm. I started looking up stats about Oreos and I just stopped. There was no point <laughs> because it doesn't matter. There's nothing that compares to the popularity of Oreo, the amount of money it makes, the number of kinds that there are. And it outsells every other cookie by like multiples. Mm -hmm. And then you think that it was actually kind of a ripoff of another cookie that they literally <laughs> stopped making. And we're going <laughs> to, we are going to dive deep in the deep dish into all of that cookie drama when we come back. Nice. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. Thanks for joining us for part one of our Cookie Double episode. We'll see you next week for part two. Be sure to follow the show and catch up on past episodes wherever you get your podcast. 
Connect with us on social media at Food Day Pod. Join our mailing list through our website, yumday.co slash podcast. And don't forget to leave us that rating and review. The clips of music you heard today were from The Girl Scouts of America, Sesame Street, Friends from NBC Universal, and the TED Talk, How I Use Cookies to Teach History by Jasmine Cho. Every Day is a Food Day is a production of Van Balen Productions and Yum Day. It is produced and hosted by us, Leah Ballantyne and Anna Van Balen. But you can't eat that, so... C is for cookie, that's good enough for me. Yeah.